Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit cjsw.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the city of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcast in bloom. Welcome to Hearsay. My name is Amanda, and I'm here with Emily. Today, we're joined with Justice Paul Jeffrey to explore the court systems in Alberta and Canada. Justice Jeffrey was appointed to the Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta in 2009 and has been serving since then. He has also been appointed to the Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories and to the Nunavut Court of Justice. Before his appointment, his legal practice concentrated in the energy and environment sectors, advocating for clients before tribunals and the reviewing courts. Thank you, Justice Jeffrey, for joining us. We're so thrilled to have you with us today. In the spirit of reconciliation, we would first like to acknowledge that hearsay is recorded on Treaty 7 territory. We acknowledge that Treaty 7 territory is the traditional and ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, consisting of the Kanai, Pikani, and Siksika, as well as the Tsuchina Nation and Stony Nakoda First Nation. We acknowledge that this territory is home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have gone before us. We make this acknowledgement as an act of gratitude to those whose territory we reside on or are visiting. So in the news, we sometimes see the highest court in Canada decided that, or the highest court in Alberta decided that, whatever it is. And of course, the content of what the courts have decided on is important. But have we stopped and thought, wait, what is the highest court in Canada? And then what are the lower courts in Canada? Or alternatively, if I were to sue or get sued, where do I begin and where could I end up? So this episode is for all of you who have asked these kind of questions. So let's start broadly. Justice Jeffrey, can you give us an overview of the types and levels of courts in Alberta and Canada? Perhaps it's best to start with uh, where I work with that court and tell you about courts relative to that. So I sit on the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. It is uh, the senior level trial court for the province of Alberta. Uh, And it has jurisdiction to hear everything. It has inherent powers and is a function of Section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867. Parties can appeal a decision of our court, and they would apply to do that to the Alberta Court of Appeal. So when people talk about the highest court in the province, it is a reference to the Alberta Court of Appeal. If people still are not happy with the result for whatever reason, from the Alberta Court of Appeal, they can um, appeal further, sometimes only 
when the Supreme Court of Canada permits them to, gives them leave, sometimes as of right, but they would then go to the highest court in the country, which is the Supreme Court of Canada. It's based in Ottawa. In Alberta, there is also the Alberta Provincial Court. It is a creation of the Alberta government. It's a creation by statute. We hear appeals from its decisions, and it has jurisdiction uh, in broad four areas. Uh, one is uh, criminal matters that proceed summarily rather than on indictment, and that's just two different kinds of processes uh, that the Crown Prosecutor may choose from based on whatever section of the criminal code is involved. They uh, hold preliminary inquiries on many kinds of criminal offenses, and if they conclude there is sufficient evidence warranting the matter being set over to trial, it is then tried in our court. So it's the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench that convenes jury trials, criminal and civil, though civil jury trials are rarer in Alberta. Um, the Alberta Provincial Court, in addition to that criminal division, has a civil division where it has jurisdiction over matters up to $50,000 at stake for claims in excess of that mount, amount of damages sought. The parties would bring their action in our court, in the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. Parties are permitted to bring actions in our court for matters under $50,000, but they miss out on the efficiency and the advantages of bringing it in provincial court. One of those is you do not have to retain a lawyer to proceed with the matter in provincial court. You must in our court, pursuant to the uh, Law Society of Alberta Act. Alberta Provincial Court has two other divisions. One is the Youth Division, and the fourth is the Traffic Division. Matters which lawyers refer to as prerogative writs, such as seeking a declaration or an injunction or having a review of a tribunal decision. There's a wide range of kinds of prerogative writs. Those cannot be brought in provincial court. Those come to our court. So in effect, our court has jurisdiction over everything except things which statutes have expressly directed to other courts. So that's the case federally. There are federal statutes that create the federal court. So tax matters are heard by the federal court tax division. Immigration, copyright, and patent sort of claims, those are heard by the federal court trial division. Specific tribunals, federal tribunals, can be reviewed by the Federal Court of Appeal or appealed to the Federal Court of Appeal. The matters that go to provincial court go there because of a statute that gives, creates the court and gives it jurisdiction. So everything not dealt with in those courts really comes to, in Alberta, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. There is a similar court of superior jurisdiction, the words used in the Constitution, in each province of the country. In British Columbia, it's the British Columbia Supreme Court. In Saskatchewan, it's the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench, like fashion in Manitoba and all the other provinces. Going back a little bit, you said for the Alberta Queen's Bench, it has inherent powers. What does that mean? In common law Canada, the law derives from a number of sources. One is statute. So when a legislature or a parliament 
uh, creates a law. It's our role to apply that law. Some laws that govern our conduct in our society aren't contained in any statute. Uh, they are found in call it the tradition of prior decisions. Uh, lawyers refer to a Latin phrase called the ratio decidendi, the, the principle that is uh, determined by a prior court in like circumstances is to be followed by subordinate courts. So if the Court of Appeal makes a decision. And so that common law, body of laws, develops and we have the inherent power to apply those cases, those principles from those cases. Um, the inherent powers of our court is broader, though, and derives from the Constitution. A constitution, as you may recall from your first-year law studies, uh, has an executive branch and a legislative branch, and it has a judicial branch. And each has a role in controlling the excesses of the other. Excesses may be a bit of a harsh word. Uh, but if a government creates a law that is challenged as contrary to the Constitution, the courts have the power to quash that law or to read it back so that it is not given any application that is beyond the scope of the constitutional powers of the government that made it. Similarly, the courts may make a decision in a matter, and the governments not like it. The courts may interpret something in the legislation that a government made, and in their caucus or in their debates, they say that's really not what we intended by those words. So maybe we didn't draft it well enough, or we never thought about that application of it, and that's taking it too far. And so the government then, elected by the people, has the authority to draft new laws, provided it's within the scope of their authority under the Constitution. They make a new law, and thereafter, the courts must apply that law, not the earlier judge-made law. So there are those restrictions on our inherent powers, for sure. I, I was at a tour in Washington, D.C. of the United States Supreme Court, and one of the things they said is, this isn't the highest court in the land. We all kind of gave that double-take look. Do you know why? So apparently, in the room above their main hearing room, they have a basketball court. And so, <laughs> and so they say, the highest court in the land is our basketball court. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. Actually, I was also going to ask, so you, you said in provincial court, one of the advantages for... Um, just everyday people is that they don't need to hire a lawyer, but for Queen's Bench, you do, according to the Law Society rules. Why does that exist? Well, I suppose you'd have to ask the Legislative Assembly of the province that created that years ago. My best guess is that it has a lot to do with uh, permitting lawyers to self-regulate. And so the Law Society of Alberta statute sets up the um, constraints on that authority and the restrictions, and so also gives lawyers some protected turf, I guess. Uh, as uh, judges of a court of superior jurisdiction, we like 
having lawyers come in. I don't want to say we don't like having people representing themselves, not at all. And some of them, frankly, uh, do a very effective job at representing their interests. But they do so at great risk. There's an awful lot that they may think they know and they don't. And when self-represented litigants, I appreciate this is going a bit off topic, but when they come in, the court has a duty to ensure they are aware of the process. And so each time they come in, we feel like we're maybe going back to the days we were in practice with the client in our office and explaining the process. And we explain the process, but we can't give advice, as, as one person put it. Um, I, I didn't like uh, that judge. Uh, it's like the other side had the best lawyer in the room because the, they felt the judge had strayed beyond just explaining what the procedural options are, what to expect the next day, and what to prepare for for their trial, and moving beyond to perhaps suggestions or hints or some guidance beyond what we can do. So when self-represented litigants appear before us, it, it um, puts an added distraction on us from hearing the merits of the case and the evidence. So we have the utmost respect for the provincial court who do this all the time. It It is a different kind of a challenge, I think, when that happens. Um, but why uh, cannot individuals hire a non-lawyer to represent them in our court? Don't get me wrong. People can appear for themselves in our court. But they can't be represented by an agent, by a cousin, by uh, a spouse who, you know, they may think will do a better job or a neighbor down the street who might understand the court language a bit better. The Law Society uh, Act requires, I think it's Section 103, that to be to represent someone else in our court, you have to be a member in good standing of the Law Society of Alberta. You touched on this a little earlier, but how does a case usually arrive at a court? So you mentioned tribunals and trial courts. So how do these cases usually get to the courts you work at? And what are the types of cases you would get? Each court will have its own specific process, uh, often differing names for the commencing documents. And our court has differing names for different kinds of commencing documents. But all of them require some individual, some person, some corporation, a legal person to commence the process. The parties commence it. In our court, in the civil side, it's commenced by uh, most often a statement of claim. If it is for uh, relief by way of prerogative writ, they'll bring an application. That's all it's called, notice of application. It's on the criminal side, the Crown can commence by uh, indictment, commence by direct indictment. That means it's not going through a preliminary inquiry. It has that option. Or it can first proceed in provincial court for a preliminary inquiry. All criminal code offenses are fall into one of three categories um, by virtue of the kind of process that's followed. The first category is those which proceed by summary conviction. The third category are those that proceed by indictment. The second, the middle category, is a hybrid. It gives the Crown the option to proceed by summary conviction or by indictment. Summary conviction matters proceed in provincial court. 
Um, you could think of uh, matters which might be an individual's first charge, first offense, matters of perhaps lesser severity. The other extreme, the murder charges and the um, uh, aggravated assaults and those sorts of things, those, those come to our court almost always. Those are the ways that the Crown would commence. Could you explain what a pre preliminary um, inquiry is? Yes. Uh, they proceed in provincial court, and the Crown has the burden of satisfying the presiding judge uh, that based on the evidence heard, there is a reasonable prospect that a jury properly charged might return a conviction. So it's a fairly low threshold. But it is um, first a, a mechanism whereby those charges needn't be answered by a person if there really isn't enough evidence on every element, perhaps, something like that. It's also an opportunity for a defense counsel to hear the witnesses testify and get a sense not just of what they may have written in their notebook or evidence gathered by an investigating officer that is disclosed to the defense and they review, but they get a chance to hear perhaps a complainant testify or an eyewitness or two or three. And it does give then both counsel an opportunity to maybe talk about, is this the right charge? Is this charge going to be provable? Is there an interest in resolving it outside of court? So it serves those other functions as well. But it is a first gate through which the Crown must travel before having a matter set down for trial in our court. So you mentioned that uh, if someone can uh, commence an action starting from the provincial court or court queen's bench, depending on the case, but then do cases always start in either of those courts or can they start in, say, like tribunals or other places and make their way up to courts? Yes. There are a lot of matters that proceed before tribunals. Tribunals created by the province of Alberta, tribunals created by the government of Canada. The one I practice in front of the most was the National Energy Board. It's now called the Canada Energy Regulator. Um, but if uh, a party to one of those hearings didn't like the outcome and wanted it reviewed or appealed, um, they would go directly to the Federal Court of Appeal. Again, that's by statute. There are similar uh, tribunals in the province of Alberta for which there is a, an opportunity to appeal, sometimes only on leave, sometimes as of right. But as I think of the Alberta Utilities Commission, uh, there is a pathway directly to the Court of Appeal in Alberta to have a matter um, appealed. I believe it's a long time since I looked at that because I'm not on the Court of Appeal. It has to be an error of law or jurisdiction. Most often, you have to get leave first from a single member of the Alberta Court of Appeal. And if they grant leave to appeal on one or some of the issues, uh, then it'll go in front of a panel of at least three, the Alberta Court of Appeal. Of the wide array of tribunals in the province, uh, the vast majority have the uh, opportunity to have their, their process or decision reviewed in our court and they would commence an application for judicial review 
and there is a body of law around how those are governed. The statute that creates the tribunal very often will have something to say, sometimes quite a bit, about how accessible there ought to be uh, for rights of appeal to the courts. Sometimes they are very narrowly construed. Um, there was a time when uh, legislatures frequently put in a statute, there shall be no um, recourse to a court from a decision of this tribunal, this agency, this body, which has the uh, authority to exercise discretion in an area of people's lives. The Supreme Court of Canada, in some cases in the 80s, um, said that can't be uh, because that, in effect, enables the provincial government to create a court of superior jurisdiction, and only the Constitution can create a court of superior jurisdiction. And so even if there is no appeal on the merits, there must always be a right of review of the fairness of the process, the legality of the process. And so many times matters will come before us, even though the loser may not like the decision, they're not arguing that we change the decision. They might like it if we could. They might try to persuade us to do that, but we can't. But they may argue that the process that was followed was unfair. We didn't get a chance to be heard. We didn't get notice that this board was even going to consider that kind of those sorts of things would be found to be in breach of the principles of natural justice, Section 7 of the, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You're listening to the Hearsay Podcast on CJSW 90.9 FM. So what happens if a judge, say, like in your court decides, yeah, the process was unfair, what happens next? It's a very good question because uh, some uh, litigants will expect that if the judge thinks that the process was unfair, that then they'll win. But the statute has given exclusive jurisdiction to a tribunal to make a decision on the merits. So if we find the process was unfair, we send it back and say the process was unfair, do it again often with some comments about what we felt was unfair about the process. You unduly limited the right of one party to test the evidence raised against them. Or um, yeah, there's, there's a wide range of possibilities there. So, for instance, if the court sends it back to the tribunal in question, must the tribunal follow and say, do it again? Or can they refuse that very much depends upon what we call the constating statute, what the statute says that created the tribunal. But if they've already been persuaded that they should hear a matter and render a decision, I'd be surprised if they don't then rehear it. The parties may reach some resolution. There may be some other um, events that cause the tribunal to say, well, it's now moot or we don't have to or time has passed this by, but they're, they're going to um, proceed again. You talked about the tribunal process and about how when someone makes an appeal, it gets sent to the appeal court before possibly getting sent back to the tribunals. How long does this process usually take? Yeah, there, there's, there's no specific amount. I suppose at a high level, I would say that in our court for our civil matters, 
the time it takes is very much in the hands of the parties, their lawyers if they're represented, how fast they want to move or not. We have a rule in the rules of court that deals with, we call it the drop dead rule. If you took too long, the other side can apply and have the claim struck for want of prosecution in effect, for taking too long. Short of that, um, they can kind of take a long time. Tribunals set their own process, uh, and most of the tribunals have a structure around which when an application is filed and they decide that they're going to proceed to a hearing, they will set out a hearing order that describes the process with the deadlines. And so tribunals, duration, hearing durations by tribunals, I should say, are more a function of the tribunal. They will set the timelines and they may be open to granting um, an extension or a delay. Most often not. They set the schedule, they happen on schedule, and they proceed quicker. When they want to come to our court or the Court of Appeal, the Alberta Court of Appeal has 30 days within which to file. For judicial review in our court, it's 180 days, six months. You must file it. But once it's filed, then it's, again, as much a function of the lawyers as it is of the court. That's not the same on the criminal side. You've probably heard in the news in the last decade about Jordan. This is the name of the case the Supreme Court of Canada decided uh, in dealing with Section 11B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Section 11B of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is the uh, requirement that you be prosecuted without undue delay. And the Supreme Court of Canada put some hard and fast timelines around that. 18 months in provincial court, another 12 months in our court if it is uh, proceeding to our court. So a total of 30 months, two and a half years. It's still you know, a long time if you are waiting in custody for your trial. The 30 months to be accurate is to the end of the trial. So what happens if the Crown takes too long, for instance, for a criminal case? The remedy on uh, satisfying a member of our court that it has been undue delay is a stay. What that means is we will stay the prosecution, and that's the end of it. And I'm going to ask, what does it mean to stay the prosecution? In effect, it means that it is uh, outside the law for the Crown to continue, and the Crown cannot continue. So it is over. Not to be confused with the Crown itself can choose to stay a charge. And if the Crown chooses to stay a charge, for whatever reason, it can revive the prosecution within one year from the date of the stay. This concludes part one of our interview with Justice Paul Jeffrey. We'd like to thank Justice Jeffrey for his time. You can listen to the continuation of his interview next month on CJSW on 90.9 FM. You are listening to the Hearsay Podcast. We are proud to present you with legal information, but please remember that this is information, not legal advice. If you require legal advice, please consult a lawyer. The Hearsay Podcast is a joint project between CJSW and Pro Bono Students Canada, University of Calgary Chapter. If you would like to hear more podcasts like this, the Hearsay Podcast can be found on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.